Follow the Four Corners Podcast on social media. Like us on Facebook, Four Corners Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Podcast Four Corners. And check us out on Instagram, Four Corners Podcast. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review. I want to take this time to apologize to the television audience for what they're about to see. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Four Corners Podcast. I am Shad, here with, uh, well, this week, Brad. Brad, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, we believe that this week Matt has absconded to the other side of the continent on some kind of secret mission that will hopefully bring us back, you know, backstage passes to double or nothing or whatever the next big eight. But we kind of doubt it. We want to get our shout-out. Oh, yeah, we'll get our shout-outs taken care of <laughs> real quick here at the beginning. The first one goes to Collar and Elbow, the wrestling brand, CollarAndElbowBrand.com. Use the promo code for Corners Podcast. That's the number four capital C in Corners, capital P in Podcast, to save 10% off your order. Other shout-out, Brad, do you want to handle it or do you want are, me to? Are we calling him Epic Orlando these days? We've been calling him Orlando. Okay. This goes to Orlando Cologne, who would be our favorite of all DMs. <laughs> Brad, that sounds like a segue. It is. All right. Since uh, Matt wasn't with us this week, when, when Matt is away, Brad and I tend to veer off into tabletop stuff. And we had been talking and thought that an episode about the role that uh, the the – not often enough sung hero of any tabletop game is your GM, the person running the game. So I decided I would turn and invite two good friends of mine who happen to be the two best uh, DMs that I know to join us. So this is my friends Jonathan and Eric. Guys, thank you for joining us tonight. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Uh as it stands right now, I'm actually playing in a game, a game each of these two guys, and I have been playing in Jonathan's games for years. Um, I got to play in Eric's on and off uh, a little bit here and there uh, as time went by, and you know we have a uh, oh god, it is 2022, uh, almost 20 years worth of of this sort of stuff between us. And I know that their experience goes back even further. So just to kind of start off, guys, we'll start high level. And the first question is, what um, what do you see the role of a GM or a DM uh, in a tabletop game as being? Now, let's start with Jonathan, and then we'll go to Eric. Um, yeah, so the, I mean, the, the, the Game Master... Uh, is kind of has to wear a lot of hats. Um, so you're responsible for playing basically every character in the world. That's not, you know, the, the characters being portrayed by the players at the, the at the table. Uh, cause each player has generally one character that they play. Uh, and then you're responsible for everyone else. 
Um, you're also kind of responsible for adjudicating rules issues, rule de rules decisions, um, building the overall story, uh, building the world if you're doing your own custom world, um, and then also just kind of uh, keeping things moving and keeping the like the energy and flow of the table uh, going well. Um, plus, I don't know everything else, uh, hosting a lot of the time, uh, providing snacks sometimes, you know, uh, it's kind of kind of a little of everything. Uh, Eric, what about you? Uh, I always liked the the terminology that World of Darkness games used to use. I don't know if they still do, but they refused to call their controller for their game a game master or a dungeon master. They always used to refer to them as the storyteller. Um, Jonathan already touched on this too, but like the main point, main thing that I always look at as being your job is to to craft and direct the story. And, you know, when you first start out, it tends to be something I think we've all done this when we were on games that uh, you tend to be too on the rails with it. And as you gain some experience with it, you start being more willing to, to open it up and let your players have some freedom with it. But your job more than anything is to create a foundation that, you know, these these incredible stories and, and shared memories and everything else can, can come from. And you have to create that mood and the theme and everything else. And what goes with that and in service to it is everything else Jonathan was saying of, of running the game, of, of make, making sure that rules are handled efficiently and correctly and that you're controlling all the various NPCs. When you say on the rails... Um, in case we have some listeners out there who are not familiar with this particular realm, what would you uh, mean when you say that? So when your campaign's running on rails, it's, uh, like I said, a common thing that people run into when they first start running the game. They create a story, X, Y, and Z are going to happen, and they must happen in the sequence. And the only solution to this puzzle is the one that I thought up in advance the only resolution to the storyline is the one that I envisioned. And the only way through the dungeon is the route that I plotted out. Uh, when it's on rails, you know, it's referring to like being on a train and that you're having to follow one pre-scripted path. It's a common mistake that early GMs make. Um, it, it's just kind of part of the, the process of, of getting better at it is getting past that point. Uh, it's it's a lot of it's because uh, GMs you know kind of feel like they're not part of the story if they're not controlling it and they oftentimes aren't ready to relinquish a lot of that control to their players to to come up with their own creative solutions and go off on tangents and everything. Okay, and I think so. A lot of sorry, if I just did, no, let's go ahead. Jump in and build on that. Um, I think a, a thing that a lot of people run into is like they get really excited about you know because you're spending especially if you're building your own world and your own your own you know setting and stuff uh, you're spending hours and hours and hours before the game even starts like thinking through all these cool things that are going to happen and um you know thinking of these cool puzzles you're going to throw at your players and like cool solutions for them and it's just it's real easy to get like locked into the the way that you envision things going before the game starts and then you can often miss out on all the real fun that like a tabletop game has which is that kind of improvisation and, you know, what your players are bringing to the table um, because you're, you're, you, you got into thinking like, okay, you know, the players are going to blackmail this guard, 
you know, once they find out that he's got like a gambling addiction and then that leaves out, th- th- but then that leaves you saying no to your players a lot if they yeah. don't go down, go, go down that route. And so then you might lose out on, there might be a great side story of them. I don't know. Um, uh, seducing the catering staff to get in that, that, that could happen. Um, but you're kind of closed off to that because you're, you're just locked into that, that one solution you, you kind of thought up beforehand. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, what skills would you say it's good for new GMs to brush up on before they start running a game then? Either one of you, go ahead. Um, cohesive story is important. Uh, you, you need to also be able to have at least a, a basic fundamental motivation for a lot of your characters. Honestly, in terms of, of I wouldn't even necessarily call it a skill as much just as useful uh, background experience is reading a lot of books, uh, especially fantasy and the like. Uh, getting this idea of how you want a story to flow, of coming up with you know, some of the foundations and the like. Um, I mean, I know some people are really, really big on doing a lot of crazy voices and stuff at tables. Uh, I'd like to do that too. It's a lot of fun, but I don't think it's necessary. Uh, really what you need to do is be able to, to come up with that cohesive flowing story, something that, that makes sense and is logical. Like it's a tangent here, but that's why I absolutely hate escape rooms. And I, when they first came out, everybody said I was going to love them. But my problem with all of them is they're almost entirely illogical. And I go in there thinking like a dungeon master, thinking like a tabletop player and expecting the various elements of what's happening to make sense and to follow like a logical structure. And they don't. Hmm. Jonathan, what would you say? I mean, that's a that, that, that's an excellent answer. Um Another thing I would say probably is um, I don't know if it's a skill exactly, but a um, like a willingness to to kind of improvise and think on your feet. Um, I, I used to get way too locked into to trying to like plot out every contingency and every every scenario and things like ahead of time. Um, and you, you just you can never plan for everything. And um, uh, Eric does. So Eric and I actually we, we co-DM'd a, a, a pretty successful game. If, if I don't, you know, if I if, at least from my perspective, um, some I don't know, 15 years ago. Um, but uh, but that was an interesting thing that, that, that I found with that was where, where I, I like to, to try to plot everything out. Whereas as, as Eric was a little more um, free flowing and in, in, in improvising and stuff. And I think there's. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of value to that um, that I've kind of incorporated as I've kind of matured as a as a as a storyteller because I like Eric I like the storyteller name for it uh, I think that's a good I think that's a good name um, right, it's excellent and uh, yeah so so just so just being willing to 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 sort of you know you set up a, a a cohesive like internally consistent sort of scenario to put the players in but I've taken to where I don't like to think of any kind of solution to that scenario or anything. I just I just want to present something, um, you know, a, a, a challenge, a, a building to be broken into, a uh, um, you know, a, a, a battle that's going to happen, and then I like to just kind of step back and let the players come up with this solution because uh, I feel like that posi- positions me well to like say yes to the players versus saying no to the players, mm-hmm. and I think that's probably the main lesson that I think I've learned over over doing this a long time is the more you can say yes to the players the more fun the game's going to be. 
Um, mm-hmm. And of course, within reason, you'll get some players that try to you know do just just absolutely crazy things. But um, <laughs> but 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 shutting people down is not a fun time at the at the table. It's 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 kind of a you know if you're doing like an acting improv school, they they always talk about that like yes and uh, thing. I, I mean, as I understand, I've never done improv, but. Uh, yeah, they do. Yeah, uh, but that's a that's a that's a big thing, and I I think that's that's an important thing for um, tabletop as well. So so developing that like that yes and skill, uh, I think would be probably the the key thing I would think someone should take away. To add on to what Jonathan was saying there, uh, I think I actually am, am remembering a, a moment in a common campaign where he played in that I I ran where I really started to do what he was just referring to. We ran a Thieves Guild campaign that was the monolith. I mean, it, it ran longer than any other campaign. It was uh, its own unique animal. But I would present the players with you know, various options for jobs that they could pull and everything. And at the beginning, I would you know, sit at the table, listen to what they were planning so that I could start putting together what was going to happen based on what they were doing. And as they went down these convoluted paths and sometimes some, some of their jobs, they would spend an entire Saturday planning out every aspect of it, debating on, on strategies and everything else. And I eventually, and here's a skill since Jonathan and I both kind of said, we don't know what to say as in terms of a skill. Here's at least a, a, a thing you can do to help yourself facilitate what he was saying of saying yes to players. I got to a point that after I presented them with the structure, I would go and play Skyrim on my, on my Xbox while they made their plans. I was free to pause and come back and answer any questions they had to facilitate their process and, you know, give them responses to things. But I actively didn't listen to their planning so that when they would go in to pull a job, I didn't know what they were planning to do. So I wasn't even subconsciously coming up with counters, coming up with ways that I could prevent them from having their plan work. So when they would come up with a really cool, clever plan, it was a surprise to me too. And what that ended up doing was giving them a lot more almost organic a response from the NPCs in the game world because they weren't just ready to go and completely prepared with their response. And then it ended up being a lot of fun, a lot more fun for me too, because I was seeing what they came up with without having heard about it in advance. And we had quite a few moments in that campaign where they had come up with some crazy plan that I hadn't you know, even prepared for. And it ended up making like a really memorable session. All right. Great answers, guys. Just for uh, some quick setting uh, for what it's worth for people that are out there um, who may or may not be familiar with this. It's, uh, this is a twofold question. The first one's going to be what uh, what kind of games have you guys run most often and then what is your uh, preferred game type or system to run currently? So, um, Eric, we'll start with you this time. I'd say just by sheer volume, the one I've run the most of is Dungeons & Dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're talking you know, in terms of game type, I have always typically done 
you know, kind of a standard story arc adventure kind of thing, you know, with some, some twists and turns there. I know Jonathan's going to talk about his, uh, his nobility campaign at one point, which one of the rare times <laughs> I got to play in one. And, and that was very fun and very different in terms of structure. Uh, in terms of game types, I've really kind of uh, fallen in love with getting away from the, what's the current term everybody uses for it? Murder hobo, where, yeah everybody just kind of wanders from place to place. I found that having a base of operations in the game actually really helps to cement a lot of things and gets rid of a lot of some of the issues that you have with players not feeling connected. Mm. I mean, my first, my first tabletop game was Shadowrun. Um, I still have a kind of soft spot for it as a mm. result, but definitely the one I've done the most of is D and D and, to answer your other question about which edition, uh, I played uh, definitely the most in three or three five, but my current favorite is uh, actually fifth. I think it's probably the easiest one for new players to pick up, and I run a Dungeons and Dragons club for high school kids, and I've seen firsthand how much easier that one is for a, a group of extremely new players, including people who've never done any role-playing, to pick up that that edition. Yeah. I came up in 3.5. That's where I got my start from, and uh, there's a lot to keep track of in that one. So. I got started in AD&D, and there's a lot of AD&D nestled into 5th edition. Uh, even when you talk to some of the older players, uh, there's a, another teacher at my school who played back in second edition in AD and D. And when he was looking through the fifth edition rule book, he was kept commenting. He's like, Oh, I remember this kind of stuff. This is like the old edition. Yeah. Second is my, where I got started. I think around 94, 95, like right about the time TSR was going bankrupt. (laughs) Hopping on the train at the exact right time. Right. I think right before they redid the books, like around, Oh, when was that? Like 96, maybe? Not real sure. Uh, so we'll go over to Jonathan. Jonathan, um, you know, what have you run the most, and now what, what kind of game do you enjoy the most to so run? I've, I've tried to strike kind of a um, – kind of my, my niche as a, as, a, as a storyteller and stuff has been, like, um, trying to hit games that aren't D&D um, is, 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 has always been a thing that – and, and I've run D&D games – um, you know, plenty, but, uh, but I, I really get excited the most about games that are, are that aren't D&D that are something else. So, um, uh, Spycraft, uh, love Shadowrun. Uh, Eric and I started playing Shadowrun in middle school together. That's how we became friends and stuff and how we got to know each other. Um, and, uh, uh, so Spycraft, Shadowrun, uh, the World of Darkness stuff was fun. Um, uh, right now, my current game that I'm really into has been uh, Blades in the Dark and any of the Forged in the Dark uh, games that are built off of that. Which, Eric, if you haven't checked out Blades in the Dark, you, you definitely should. It's basically a whole game built for uh, Thieves Guild. Um, oh, cool. Every every time I've every time I've read it, I've been like, oh man, Eric would love this. Um, uh, we'll we'll have to have a whole. We should we should have a phone call sometime soon and and talk about Blades in the Dark. It's amazing. Um, but they also have a what I'm running right now is a Runners in the Shadows, which is a uh, they've kind of like done sort of like the um, the D20 system, like kind of open gaming license deal um, where they let other people build, 
games using their system. And this is a uh, it, it's a it's Shadowrun in all but name, um, built off of the Blades in the Dark system. Um, so yeah, so I like to I like to branch out a, a lot from that. Uh, I like Hollow Earth Expedition quite a bit, just for like some pulpy adventure. Uh, but I tend to think um, you want to once you kind of come up with an idea for a game, I like to try to find a game that sort of fits that niche rather than trying to like necessarily and, and you certainly can like jam a different genre onto D D. But when you do that, you, you always run into a lot of like sort of adjustments and changes to the rules and stuff you have to do to make that to make that fit. So I tend yeah, to find a game that like fits the theme I'm going for. Sorry, go ahead, Eric. Yeah. No, no, it's just the first thing that jumped to mind when you said trying to fit things onto D and D is trying to explain to a new player why something like a firearm is a terrible weapon in D and D because of the, <laughs> the turn based mechanics. And you're like, that guy's running at me from a hundred feet away. Why don't I just shoot him? Like, it's not your turn. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm just going to watch him. Yup. Yeah. You're just going to just watch but, him at you. And yeah, like, yeah. But why would I? And you're like, cause, cause that's why <laughs> it's how the game works. <laughs> it's how the game mechanics work. Well, Eric, I know you and I have had uh, like over the years a, a number of laughs and discussions about like anything about like sort of economics in Dungeons and Dragons and the rule system and how like none of that has made sense in any edition ever. Uh, and no. so, what, if that's something that you want to delve into in your game, that's where like you're going to have to either homebrew a lot of rules for that. You know, if you want to do a game about like so, uh, Eric mentioned the nobility campaign that I ran. Um, so then that campaign, instead of being like you know, just like a gang of adventurers roaming around, like, you know, going into dungeons, killing everything and taking their treasure. Um, I had all of the, all of those characters were like members of noble families that ruled like sections of the, of the world. Um, so they had, they had access to a lot of resources and stuff, but it, it, there was a lot of like kind of homebrewing that had to happen and, uh, and, and stuff in the background to deal with like tracking their treasuries and what, what are their, you know, they're bringing in taxes or they're just spending that on sweet magic gear for themselves or to try to improve their territories and, and stuff like that. And, uh, but that required a lot of like, you know, I, I had some really game players that, that, that helped out with it, but a lot of just kind of finagling in the system to make that work. Um, well, and even within their own rules for D and D, especially if you look back at like the three, five, which is the last time I'm aware of that they made one of those books. But the Stronghold Builder's Guidebook made no sense in terms of of the wealth of the game world. Like a very, very tiny border fort cost more gold than like the most expensive magic item that you would be able to buy anywhere. To an absurd degree. Like a, a simple little fort was almost like a half a million gold. Wasn't and I remember – wasn't a pit trap like a thousand gold or something like that? Uh, I, I think it's like I think it's like twenty thousand. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it was it was something insane, and in every game that I did where there was any kind of world building, all we ever did was immediately immediately change that, and I usually changed it to a, a factor of ten. It was like they were a tenth the price that was in those books for anything that was non-magical because otherwise even a, a little bandit prince who had like a, a tree fort who in you know every form of of written media every everything where that's that's character is going to be somebody who lives on the fringes of the world and 
while they might be the leader in their little personal fiefdom, they're not living an amazing lifestyle. They're not living in comfort. Usually they're kind of scraping by. But this person is richer than just about any other person other than like a king because he owns a collection of boards that were nailed together and stuck up in a tree. <laughs> All oh, right. This is the game where the, in a predecessor, if you were a wizard, a kitten could one shot you on a critical hit. <laughs> yeah, there is always that. <laughs> but when I, I realized that um, when I was playing, when I got started playing in three, five, I looked at that and I went, Oh, that that can't be right, can it? And then, as as it turned out, yeah, it's it's right. Um, maybe it should have been, but it was. So, yeah. Well, and that's uh, there's a there's a discussion I'm having with a, a, a group of players that I play with, um, uh, different different from either other of you guys and stuff. Um, a, so a number of them are really frustrated with fifth edition and that it's not very lethal um like it's 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 fairly hard to kill a player character other than first level first level is kind of its own game um Mm -hmm. almost separate from all the rest of the levels but like especially once you get you know to any level any high level it gets real hard to kill a player character Mm -hmm. i think that's by design because you know a lot of people want their character to go experience the whole story um but rather than being frustrated about that that's where i tend to be like there's there's other games that are built for that kind of like super lethal like you know you make one misstep your character dies you're rolling up a new character um you know you've got like dungeon crawl classics and stuff like that um that really cater to that kind of you know if you want to play like a hardcore mode game like yeah you could mess with fifth edition's rules a bunch and make that work but you could also just go to a game that is 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 built for that from the ground up um yeah i don't it, for me, it has to be one or the other. It either has to be high, high lethality, and that's the point of not getting attached to your characters. But when I've run, I just don't... Unless someone's, like, agreed to it beforehand, I don't like killing some character someone spent, like, months or years uh, with just because, you know, some dice hit wrong. And that some of these people have invested a lot into because... You know that this is something they went through the trouble of making a backstory for, and they really want to see how it turns out. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're just suddenly gone, which it you know works in a Game of Thrones setting, but you know, not exactly fun for when you're supposed to be epic heroes, right? Well, in Dungeons and Dragons, there's kind of a higher likelihood that you're going to run into kind of like a chosen one situation, and mm-hmm. Being able to make sure that the chosen ones don't accidentally die, and <laughs> that you have to figure out how the story works when the chosen ones are dead. Like, uh, actually, it was a thing that could be passed on to a worthy successor, kind of thing. Like, I mean, it, it it does help to avoid that kind of thing. And sure. I think people that want high lethality though don't think about it like in long term practice. Like, do you really want your rogue to get murked because he failed it? disarm trap roll and the chest blew up in his face that just doesn't seem to me anyway doesn't seem fun because it's like oh now your character's just dead well you can't you can't laugh at him if he's dead either yeah yeah there's there's that uh well then D too if you, if you start looking at like the sort of not to get 
you know, too into like, you know, math hammer or something here. But uh, if you start digging into the like looking at the probabilities of stuff, d and is a pretty swingy game probability wise. You know, you've got to, you know, with the 20 sided die for a skill check, if you're doing an opposed check, you know, that's like a, you know, 40 point range or whatever, you know, you know, that you can have between the between your 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 characters on on characters that, you know, if you're unskilled, you know, you might have like a, a one or two modifier to your role that you're adding to your to your dice roll and a, a very skilled character at at like at early level somebody who's like dumped everything into something might have like an eight uh that they're adding in on a 20 point swing like that's that that's really not that good of a change of odds um no so, so if you're talking liver dying off of one die roll it, it's very random um like being good at something doesn't actually mean that you're good at it uh mm-hmm. yeah and i i felt with versus like 3.5 when i've played there's a lot of times where we've kind of just sat around the table looking at each other going okay well which of us is going to screw this up the least (laughs) yeah yeah you don't have as uh, one thing fifth edition doesn't have is you don't have as many opportunities to spread out on skill stuff no you can Um, be good at a couple of things and and be consistently good at that you can't have like a watered down uh, like i'm good at a bunch like i'm sort of good at a bunch of things that can get by it's like no you need to specialize and be good at yeah a few things okay so speaking of of points and lethality and stuff how much do you guys mess with the rules as printed when you run a game and uh we'll start with Eric, this time, how much do you mess with the rules? I haven't messed with fifth edition's rules that much yet, but that's mostly because I've been running it with a bunch of kids and I'm trying to get them to the point where they understand how to follow the rules. (laughs) Um, Okay. Three, five would probably be a better example of that. By the end of that, I had a whole house rules page that I would bring with me to for campaigns for perception and everything else just because i thought hide moves are or hide moves silently they were too powerful of skills because so few classes actually got listen and spot back then mm-hmm. um but we made a lot of changes uh we made changes about the uh, resurrection system because the problem I always ran into in three five was if you rezzed a character, they lost a level. And if you made a new character, according to the standard rule in the DMG, that new character came in at one level lower than the party. And if the rest of the party is typically all with the same level, which oftentimes for our campaigns they were, you had the choice of resurrecting a character for a very large gold piece cost, losing a level, and then continuing on, or having a character that was the same level, but keeping all of the loot and gear that the character who died had in the party, but then the whole new character got all new loot and gear because the 3-5 rules had rules for starting equipment when you brought in a new character. And there was no real incentive for people to want to hang on to a character in those rules. So, I mean, by the end of 3-5, I got rid of the level loss part of it because they were already, the group was already losing money on resurrecting the character. 
And it meant that if you kept the character in the game, all of the camaraderie and role-playing and everything else that had been developed wasn't lost. Like, mm-hmm. my wife had a character that got disintegrated trying to climb into a wizard tower in one of my campaigns, and the group gathered her ashes up and went and got her reincarnated at a druid that they had met. And she came back, she started as a wood elf, and she came back as a bugbear, because we rolled on a random chart. And it completely redefined the character. She was kind of bland and uninteresting to both my wife and the rest of the group. But when she came back as a bugbear, it completely redeveloped the whole thing. And she ended up being a much more interesting character to the group. And if she just made a new character with the standard rules, that wouldn't have happened. And then all of the the you know shared experience wouldn't have been available. But like I said, for fifth, I haven't been changing them too much, partially because of my club and partially because of the fact that I've been playing mostly remotely with fifth edition rules and using a site like D&D Beyond. It's trickier to make rules changes in there because then you're missing some of the benefit of having the system built into the website. All right. Jonathan, how much do you mess with the rules? It depends on the game uh, and uh, kind of what's going on. Um, my big thing with messing with, with house rules and stuff is that um, you you just uh, as 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 the you know as the, as the storyteller I like to I like to stick to the rules, especially if it's in in, in the player's favor. Um, I, I and I've, I've made this mistake before, but like you don't want to try to change a rule like mid game without building consensus with your players um that doesn't feel good if if, if like um you know if they if, if the storytellers is coming in as like you know i've decided this isn't working i'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna impose you know some some different you know different ruling or something um that can that can leave a real real sour taste so i like it to be a um a very like kind of like above the table like conversation that everybody buys into if we decide you know we're gonna do a house rule so i, I always like to make it very clear when house rules are happening. Um, that being said, also, I don't like to get tied up in the middle of a session necessarily on, like, rules minutia and, like, let's stop the game for 20 minutes while we, like, look up a bunch of rules and some books. Um, so I'll tend to do a lot of, like, sort of, like, one-time provisional, like, rules calls. If, if, if Like, if we don't know how it works, I'll be like, okay, we're going to – as long as uh, as long as it's cool with everybody, let's roll with it this way. And then we can look it up later and 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 figure out how it should have worked, you know, if it, especially if it's a new game that we haven't played much with yet. And I found good success with that. Um, but I think that the key is make sure it's a dialogue with the players and that, that there's some consensus there, and and you're not just you know dropping rules changes on people um, mm-hmm. kind of midstream. Um, so that makes sense to me. All right, uh, let's see. Just for kicks, kind of. Uh, what um when you're running a game a one thing that i know that i can definitely put a finger on even if it's kind of hard to define is that different uh gms have different styles you know different storytellers have different styles uh you know jonathan's is different than eric's than is different than mine for example even if I haven't done it as much as you guys have, um, what what do you see as 
personal goals whenever you're you're running a game? Is there certain things that you want to make sure happen or anything like that? Um, let me see. We started with Eric last time, so we'll go to Jonathan on this one, I think. Again, for me, it depends on what game I'm running. Because um, I like to play around with different genres and stuff and, and run different things. Um, so, you know, if, if I'm running something like Spycraft, Shadowrun, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for like a heist game. So like some cool, you know, um, some cool plans, like, you know, that, that, that fun, like Ocean's Eleven feel, like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, whereas if I'm running something like, um, you know, Hollow Earth Expedition, you know, I'm looking for that, that's more of a like pulp adventure. So I'm wanting just like punchy, fast pace, um, like just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing if it sticks, really zany stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mutants and masterminds is, is, is good for superhero stuff. So it, it just kind of depends on like the, the general vibe. Um, but I like to have a, like a kind of a meeting with the players, like before the campaign starts and kind of like outline some of that. Cause I've run into trouble before where like I had goals for a campaign that didn't match up with the players. Uh, there was a Shadowrun game I ran in college where I had just come off of running like a two year long Shadowrun campaign and I didn't really want to do all that again so i wanted to run it uh this as like um where they were like a basically like a combination ambulance crew slash swat team um but they just wanted to do like shadow run mercenary work so um you know as soon as they were off their shift they were just like going and trying to like find scores to do and stuff like that and it wasn't what i wanted to play and the way i was handling there was just having them have like real bad consequences when that happened um and uh that really wasn't the right way to go i should have should have kind of just talk things through and been like, look guys, this, that, that isn't the kind of game I'm looking for. So mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of a long rambling answer, but basically just trying to fit the mood to what, what the players are looking for and make sure everybody's on the same page, you know, and that we're playing the right game for that. So. I, I have to uh, make a confession. Um, the game that Jonathan just described was my first shadow run game. And I remember the justification for scrounging up mercenary work in our downtime was just to get more money coming in to get new cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that, and that was fine. There was nothing wrong with that. It's just it, it was just a disconnect between me and the players. And yeah. rather than just sitting down and talking about it, you know, I was like, oh, well, they're gonna, you know, I'm, I'm gonna kill them off because they're gonna piss off the mob and like this and that, and and that just. I don't know. That wasn't the right way to to approach that situation. Yeah. Well, Shadowrun is such a weird animal anyway. I mean, the way the game's book is written, or at least how it used to be, just implies that you're effectively just supposed to be completely loose cannons doing whatever you feel like, and the the game world isn't going to punish you for it in any way. And it makes for really bland stories when you do it that way. But doing anything else also feels like a weird deviation from the way the, the, the characters are presented. I've always maintained that Shadowrun is the best setting to never have a good system tied to it. Sure. Uh, I actually, I, I love Shadowrun, but like, I kind of hate the Shadowrun rule system. Um, oh, the rules are awful. Because I think third is the closest they've ever got, but the problem I've always had with it is is the deckers just ruin everything, and I think they took that out for one edition, and then the long-time players complained, so they put it back in, but it's like, but then you're playing two games again, which is a big problem with Shadowrun, is half your people are always 
sitting around doing nothing. Mm. It's a it's a risk. Uh, that's one thing that I've, I've liked about this uh, Runners in the Shadows that I'm, I'm running now is it um, it strips a lot of the like because there's so much Shadowrun tries to be very simulationist and it it strips a lot of that out and kind of gets to just like doing fun crazy scores and uh, I I think that works out better. Uh, I absolutely agree with you on that one. So um, I've kind of wanted like a savage Shadowrun. Oh, like a no-holds-barred no, people savage, are going to die? Savage Worlds adaptation oh, of it. Oh, okay. All right, I got you. Um, so, just for just for kicks, guys, when when you do get to sit on the other, ti- other side of the table, what uh, is there an archetype you find yourself drawn to? Is there something you look at and you're like, hey, you know, I, this this is a style that I think is fun and I'd really like to do? Uh, Eric, why don't we start with you? I haven't played enough to have a <laughs> real answer to that. Yeah, the curse um, of the eternal DM, right? I'm trying to think. I mean, I've, I've played kind of a little bit of everything as uh, it was available, but I don't know that I really have had a big trend i think i had two different gnomes so i guess i could say gnomes okay <laughs> yeah. all right jonathan what about you try to mix it up and play different things but i'd say i probably about my like bread and butter that i can that i come back to a lot is 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 a rogue um like i, I don't know i like rogue especially like a sort of social like con man kind of rogue uh, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy that a lot uh, all right so just for fun We'll get away from quite the structured stuff for a moment, but what is a uh, a story from a game you were running that you have a lot of fun telling? What what comes to mind? And we'll just go with with whoever has one pop up first, because I I don't want to force the uh, the memory recall on this one. I got one for this. Go for it. So my last really big campaign was an epic beast. Uh, I started all the characters off at sixth level. They each started with a sidebar to get them together into the start of the campaign. And it was very role-play intensive. It was a, a nobility campaign that I ran, but it was also an evil campaign. Jonathan's brother, Jason, was uh, secretly... Uh, an incipient deity, but didn't know it. The one player was the marquee of the whole region, and there was a lot of intrigue and everything because all of the players were evil, except for Jonathan's brother, except he also kind of was, but that's a whole other side thing. But at one point in the campaign, we were going to have a session where the marquee who his that player's name was Brian was going to be the victim of a nightmare spell. And the whole purpose of it was to get him away from all of his allies so that he could be kidnapped by the, I won't call him the big bad because they were all evil as well, but <laughs> the, the main antagonist of the campaign and the one who kind of created the big final opportunity for Brian's character. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I decided that I wanted to set this up in such a way that we could use a complete lack of metagaming to enhance the experience. And so we were arranging sessions through a Facebook group, and I sent out an invite to the session for that night, and I said, hey, everybody, I've got to stay late after work tonight because I have some mandatory training videos I've got to watch. We need to start 30 minutes late. I should be able to get them all done. Then I privately messaged every player except Brian and told them to ignore that and show up on time. So everyone but Brian came to my house at the normal time. Brian showed up a half an hour late, and I used the the time to set the scene for them. I said, none of you are playing your characters for real tonight, but you are all playing versions of your character that are in this hostile nightmare. The whole point is that you guys need to betray Brian and you need to get him to a point where he feels like he has no allies left in town and that he his only option is to try and escape. I said, you can kill any character in the game except for Brian and except for his seneschal. That his seneschal is going to be the wizard who's running the nightmare. He's going to be Brian's only ally, and he'll be the one who finally sets everything up. You guys just need to create this building level of betrayal and, and fear and concern and paranoia so that he feels like his only escape is to, is to flee, is to run. I said, I'll tell you guys now, because I don't want to have to give you any indication at, at the moment when it happens. When Brian is running through the woods to try and get into a carriage, he's awake, and you guys are all your actual characters again. But he's not going to be aware of any scene there. So we got together for this session, and everybody was the Star Trek goatee version of their regular character. (laughs) Everybody was hostile to him. And they started replacing his house guards with people that he was that they were that were loyal to, to him or to them instead of him. They murdered his wife like while he was out giving a speech or something. Um, they kept making deals with other hostile factions in the in the march against him. And it was this growing, escalating thing. And my brother actually did a great job in the whole thing, kind of led the the charge with the group. But at one point, I went to do a sidebar with somebody, and Brian was ready to leave. He had his keys in hand, and he was ready to just storm out and drive off and go home because he was completely convinced that the group had just turned on him. And my wife talked him out of it. it was like, no, no, no. I mean, it's just a game. Like, don't. Don't take it that personally. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. And so he finally, fine, fine, fine. Well, by the end, the only person left was the Seneschal. He offered to set Brian's character up with an escape route. It was going to be a carriage was waiting for him to take him back to his father's household. The, The Seneschal would distract the rest of the group. But, you know, he wasn't sure how long it would be. So he takes off, you know, he, he's supposed to sleep. And then it, it, in the early hours of the morning, he's going off to, to do this. And so he wakes up and he's out of the nightmare spell. 
And again, this is completely different than the actual spell nightmare, but it was a lot more fun for everybody to do it this way. So he's running through the woods and the group is now chasing him because they know that he snuck out in the middle of the, in the middle of the night at like four in the morning and that something weird's going on. So they're coming after him and he gets to the carriage and he starts to climb in and one of them says something to him and he starts to realize for a moment that maybe something is wrong, that things haven't happened. And then an arm grabs him from inside, pulls him into the carriage and they take off into the distance. And in the aftermath, when he realized what was happening, watching him sitting there just obliterated by the realization that the entire thing was one huge setup that everybody was in on it. They were all playing these nightmare versions of their characters just so that he wouldn't have to metagame knowing that it's really, you know, something fake and wouldn't have to forcibly role play and and get, you know, get himself into that, that headspace was such an amazing experience. That's, that's really cool. That is really cool. Um, Jonathan, do you have a have a story you'd like to share? Uh, yeah. Well, um, so uh, well, like Eric had mentioned that um, nobility game that I ran that he played in, and um, well, one of the things I really enjoyed about that was uh, so I had um, you know I'd set up you know I'd written up this like world with all these different different areas and stuff, and um, you know I wrote up uh, like a, a little packet for each like sort of like duchy or whatever it was. Um, uh, And then I had, I I put names of the duchies in a hat and had people like draw names out of the hat to see which one they were the, the the ruler of. And I had intentionally made one just, it was like a kind of like a, it was like at the frontier of the kingdom and it was uh, poor and beset by enemies from like all sides. And just, just, just generally like sort of the worst like condition of of places. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so uh, and Eric drew that one, and uh, it was really fun watching him read through his packet and at first be like, "Oh no, like <laughs> this is awful. Like my economy is based on subsistence farming, and you know I've got like orcs and undead and whatever." Um, but then watching him get excited and and through through the game as he really dug into trying to like come up with clever ways to like you know fortify that that area off and it kind of improved the lives of the people in it and stuff it was it was it was a lot of fun um you know watching him take that challenge and kind of run with it uh i, I really enjoyed that that was a that was a that was a fun fun like campaign structure so oh dude cool. talk about the ogre magi if you're going to talk about this oh yeah yeah and then uh, yeah then probably the the most fun fun moment so there was a there was a town that was being besieged by like an army of orcs and stuff that the the players were trying to help out so they had um, they had collected everybody in like a um, uh, it was like a meeting hall or basement or something um, where they had collected all of the like you know the civilians everybody who couldn't fight um, and they knew that there were some like ogre mages that were like out in the in the like orc army uh, that were like casting spells and stuff <clears throat> and uh, at at the beginning of the battle it, it, this will kind of reveal the surprise but it, it it was it was surprising to the players when when this happened but at the beginning of the battle you know they had, they had fortified up this town and i had like there were two kids that came running in from the forest that like had missed making it back to town so they did this whole heroic thing ran out saved the kids brought them into and and put them with the other with the rest of the like civilians in the in their their little shelter that they had made well as they were as they were doing things um like a couple of the players were getting frustrated because they were like 
um, like especially Eric was was getting frustrated because he was like, "There's no way for the ogre mages if they're outside of the wall to cast a spell there because they wouldn't have line of sight." And I was like, "No, I, I like I, I know like, but this is happening." So then they realized they ended up ultimately realizing that it was the the, the two kids that they had saved were like polymorphed because uh, the ogre mages can like polymorph themselves and change them into something else. Um, they had changed themselves to look like human kids so that they would get brought inside. Um, and, uh, you know, so they could, they could, uh, you know, like kind of sneak up on everybody. So, uh, so, so that was, that was pretty fun as they were, they realized that just in time to save the, all the, all the civilians from getting killed by the, uh, by the ogre magi. It was a, it was a, it was an entertaining moment. So. It was very close to. Came down to like one die roll. Uh, Ooh. Uh, I, um, it, it's always hard to to remember all of those because whenever something like that comes together, it, it feels like, at least to me, that that comes together and you smile because you're like, that's kind of what I was hoping for. But as a player, you pull one of those big things off and you're like, oh, God, I didn't know if we could do it or not. So it's at least for me, it's always interesting to see what sticks out. Um, well, and there's your there's your higher stakes for a game like fifth edition where you may not be able to have a high lethality for the players, but if they've got a vested interest in the region they're at, or if they're trying to save the people, you know, those, those two ogre magi were not a threat to our group. They could not fight the group of us. They would not have won that battle. And they didn't once we realized who they were, but they could easily blast an entire room full of children and non-combatants with codes of cold and rob us of any measure of satisfaction and what otherwise would have been a really satisfying victory, even though we ourselves weren't in any real risk. Mm. Yeah. Adding, uh, yeah, that, and, and what you were talking about earlier about like giving players a, like, a base of operations that, that, that gives them stakes in the world. Cause then you can have them, you know, have some, some townsfolk that they, that they get attached to and having them have those NPC a, a, a attachments really lets you ramp up the stakes when you can then threaten those people. And, uh, and then it has some, some resonance. Whereas, whereas like you said, it's, it's hard to threaten the player characters, you know, cause that, you know, they're built for fighting. Um, but, uh, but you know, the, the friendly blacksmith, family that's like you know lives next door or whatever like you know those those are people that you know can easily be threatened and can add some tension uh, oh absolutely all right brad i've been piloting this ship for a while here is there anything you wanted to jump in with um do you guys have a favorite class for D D? Well, Jonathan, we kind of touched on that earlier. Yeah, I mentioned I love I love rogue. Rogue is a rogue's probably my favorite class. Um, Eric, what about you? Did you have one that's that really pops can I, for you? Can I count the completely leveled twenty levels of Tinker Gnome that I wrote up one time <laughs> when I was super bored at work? <laughs> was this the Tinker Gnome that doesn't wear pants? Oh uh, yeah, that well no, he wore pants. He wore the snoodle pants. <laughs> he made he made pants out of that digester and he fit his his bits and parts down the nose. <laughs> um 
But no, you were referring to when he he we went into a a bunk room in the ship that we were going to be in, and we walk in and there's hammocks that we're supposed to sleep in. And I went on this long diatribe about how great it was to sleep nude in hammocks because everything could just hang down through the little holes <laughs> in the hammock. And as the group was trying to get over this character saying this to them, I was like, I call top bunk. <laughs> but um, it, in terms of an actual uh, in-game class, like that wasn't the fever dreams of a very bored DM sitting at a job that required him to do nothing. Uh, it would definitely be barred for me. Interesting. Uh, why, why does the bard stick out for you? They're not really the best at anything, but they're always really fun to throw into a campaign. And if there's ever a class that can completely disrupt what a campaign is doing or how it's running or the way that the party's going to confront things, it is a bard. And that is always really fun to do. Gotcha. Um, so what is, what is something? No, I won't ask that question. Cause if I ask that question, it might spoil it for I have, any I have one. Do you guys go have, for it? Have, um, so since you are experienced DMs, do you have pet peeves that other DMs do or like things you read about that they do on like message boards and stuff like that? Uh, Jonathan, we can start with you. Uh, I mean, I feel, I feel like we've kind of covered some and, and it's less pet peeves with other Dungeon Master and more like stuff that I look back that I did, you know, when I was younger and stuff that I was like, Oh man, that was just a terrible idea. Um, so cause they, cause uh, like, you know, dungeon mastering, storytelling, you know, game mastering, whatever, uh, it, it, it's a tough job. I mean, you, you definitely have the hardest seat at the table. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, so I, I, I try to cut people some, some slack, but, but things like, um, you know, the like, uh, kind of railroading, getting, getting too invested in, in your own stuff. Oh, uh, probably the one big thing is, um, Having NPCs that are really powerful that you think are really cool that you oh, yeah, try to make course. like the center of the show, but, like the players should be the star of the show. So don't have like your cool NPC that's like super awesome. Like when they show up and like save the day, that's not exciting or fun for players. Like the, the you know the players should be the one saving the day. And even if the you know even if they're like lower level find a way for them to be saving the like higher level person. That's a fun story. That's exciting. Um, like, you know, having Superman come in and save you is, is, is not that fun of a story. Like that's just, that's just kind of there. But yeah, I've never had them. I've never had them come in and save the day like that, but I've definitely been guilty of the two powerful NPCs that I think are cool. I'll, I'll, I'll straight up own up to that. I've definitely done that before. Like, I mean, I think, I think, I think most everybody has, has, has done that one at some point. Um, like it's it's an easy trap to fall in. Uh, I think it's kind of a, a GM's rite of passage. Is at some point you're going to screw up with with that particular thing. But um, anytime I have had something like that in a game I'm running, I've tried to make it for a a specific reason or purpose. It's not just like, oh, isn't this guy cool? It's a like, 
it, it has a role in the story. I, so. The only time I ever did it, I pretty much had them go along for like the first couple of quests, and they got this big artifact, and then he stole it and became the antagonist of the of the rest of the campaign. Oh yeah, that can work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's totally fine. Your only risk there is that you have to get to that point with a, a good degree of efficiency. Because if it takes too long getting there, it doesn't matter that he's the big bad. The group's just so sick of dealing with the character that it doesn't even matter to them. I think it took two sessions, maybe. I was pretty. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, with it. yeah, that's a that's a good time frame on it. Yeah, because otherwise you run into the uh, the Jar Jar Binks fan theory. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's actually like the Sith Lord. But... Yeah, and that was that was his original plan was to have Binks be the Sith Lord. But because it took too much, it was the more than an entire movie. Everybody hated the character, and so they just were like, "Uh, actually, no, no, that's not what he is." Yeah. So, is there a kind of game that you guys might like to run in the future you haven't gotten to yet, or an idea you got bubbling somewhere? Um, we started. I think we started Jonathan on this last one, so Eric, we'll start with you here. I do have a campaign that I want to run. I've got the entire structure in mind for it. I've actually considered uh, going and, and checking in with the the D&D you know, the store here uh, that's not too far away from where I live to see if they've got a group that's looking for a DM because yeah. I would like to run it. I'm trying to decide if I want to actually explain what the storyline would be or just what the basic, I guess I'll just say what the basic idea is, Yeah, is that all of the characters start out broken um, mentally. Okay. Every one of the characters is, is when I would run the campaign would have to have a backstory that, is explaining you know, this, this great deal of personal trauma. And the idea is that all of them would have this defining moment where they failed at doing the thing that they're the best at. Like the example, when I've talked to people about it that I've always used is you, know, you could make a character that was a ranger who was, you know, considered the best and brightest of the city watch. Everybody had their eye on him. He never missed. He, he never, you know, his arrows never flew untrue, and he's out on patrol one day. A bandit raid attacks a different part of the town. He makes it back just in time to see them riding off and thrown over the back of one of the bandit's horses is his young daughter tied up. He's the golden boy, the arrow that never misses. It's not a big deal. This is a shot he's made a thousand times in practice. And so he loses an arrow, but his nerves get the best of him in the last moment. He chokes and he hits his daughter instead mm. of the bandit. And so the character refuses to take up his bow again. Refuses to, to be in a position where he's going to be called on to use his, you know, his natural talents. And so for the start of the character of the campaign, you know, in this example, the character is working as a baker. He's not particularly good at it. 
he's not distinct doing that in any way, but nobody expects the Baker in town to pick up a baguette and help to defend something. <laughs> and by yeah. this point, you know, he's moved on. He's living in a different area. His wife left him because he just, she couldn't, she couldn't look at his, you know, stand to see him anymore after his failure. And this was the example that I would give to my players as the kind of thing that I wanted them to think about. They needed to come up with a story that their character started off in this state where they could not bring themselves to do the things that they were best at because mm-hmm. they had failed in this critical moment and they just couldn't bring themselves to do it. And the campaign was partially going to be about confronting some of that and have a lot of other uh, elements with it about rebuilding this forsaken town that had lost all their money to a mining scam and everybody there is kind of on their back foot and this this kind of rebuilding with a, a certain tweak to it. Gotcha. That sounds pretty intense. Uh, Jonathan, did you have one that kind of jumped at you? I do at the moment. Um, I've, I've got a couple campaigns I'm running right now, and I, I don't really have a like a clear one that I'm really looking forward to. I was excited about the Spelljammer announcement. I, I might run some Spelljammer something or another um, that just happened this past week because mm-hmm. I don't know giant space hamsters. That's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> uh, but I don't I don't really have one that's uh, you know particularly particularly like. Tickling my fancy just yet. I'm sure that'll change within like a week or two, though. I'm I'm always coming up with weird campaign ideas. Oh, right. I've already had kids ask me if I'm gonna put Spelljammer stuff on the D and D Beyond because there's one girl who wants to run a whole space D and D campaign. So I mean, it looks like I'm gonna go ahead and buy those books when they're coming out. All right, um, guys, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. I think with one last question. The, uh, you know, we've covered a lot of ground here, and you guys have had a lot of really good advice. Is there any one other thing that you would want somebody out there who may be listening to this episode and goes, well, okay, I think that maybe I can do this. I've I've got a good idea. I've got a group of people who will play and you know show up. Um, I've been taking improv everywhere classes. It's what is a piece of advice that you would want to give them that you haven't gotten to say? And I know that's that's kind of a, a curveball question, so whoever's got one they want to throw first, um, you know, we'll just let you go first. Yeah, I mean, I would say just just dive in, um, run something. Um, don't don't try to find the like the the perfect campaign and you know get your story perfect and the perfect group and everything like uh you know the perfect is the enemy of the good like just just get in a a campaign that happens and a game that happens is is better than a game that you just you just sit around and and think about for years so you know dive in make mistakes just talk to your players at the end of the sessions talk to them about what worked and didn't and uh kind of adjust and go from there eric what about you um You'll hear some advice. Uh, some people refer to them as session zeros, like a, a get together to explain what it is that you know you're looking for from a campaign. I've never done a session zero like that, where it's a, a really formalized thing. But one thing I would say, because I have had campaigns that have been torpedoed by 
this kind of thing is to at least have in your own mind and communicate to your players what kind of basic theme you're expecting for your game and for your table. So, uh, for instance, Jonathan mentioned earlier how much work goes into developing a campaign, developing uh, a, a world if you're doing world building. But even if you're not, just the campaign itself can be an extraordinary amount of time invested. And I'm always one. I'm very fond of characters that buck some trends so long as it is a character that would still fit within the game world. Jonathan one time played a drow duelist that was raised by dwarves. And so he played this drow <laughs> with the dwarven okay. axes. What was it? Orcrist battle or battle yeah, hammer Orcrist, or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just picked a silly dwarven name. But yeah. yeah. I love that character. I thought that kind of thing was super fun. It's a character that fits into the world in terms of adventurers all kind of being weirdos anyway. But I've had campaigns that have I've, I've not even started them because players decided that they didn't even want to take it seriously and that they wanted to make things that didn't fit in the game world or just wanted to make you know some silly meme or insert random present day politics into it. All these kind of things where they're making a character that's too much of a joke kind of theme. And it, it's always been something that that's bothered me when you're, you've spent a lot of time. So if you're playing a character, not that that's just an example for my own thing, but if you're planning to play a super lethal campaign, tell, make sure your players know that's what you're wanting to do. If you're planning to play, like if your thing is that you want to play a silly campaign where it's it's a bunch of jokey stuff and you're not concerned about having it be something that fits in well. If you're not wanting to play a heavy role playing campaign or you're wanting to play a heavy role playing campaign, if you have some basic theme in mind for how you want your campaigns to be, make sure your players know that or that it's communicated in some way, because there's nothing worse than a campaign that starts up and then people all have different expectations or different you know, ideas of what it's going to be, and then it falls apart. Um, the one thing I would throw in to add on to that, especially for people who are new to it, is enjoy – make sure that everybody enjoys what you're doing because – you the Mercer effect is a real thing and you know you don't have you're not getting paid as a full-time job and don't have a budget for props and stuff so you're not going to be playing like the critical role crew is that's that's not what's going to happen um you know in in eric you guys were both talking about setting expectations just make sure that people know it's like look you know I when I run, I tell people like, look, I'm going to try and do different voices, but sometimes they just kind of start blending together because I'm not great at it. Um, so you know, cut cut each other some slack. What was that? We're not all professional voice actors, you know. Yeah, that. Yeah. Well, and none of us are revealing the polished take after they've gone through their scripted activities. 
because yeah. that, that was the thing I learned about Critical Role. I, I've never actually watched it because I just had no interest and I didn't buy any of the Critical Role stuff. But uh, somebody mentioned to me, I, it wasn't all that long ago, that, you know, on top of everything else, it's not really people playing D&D in the same way that the folks who play D&D down at, you know, the comic shop are doing, where a DM presents them with a scenario and it's their unscripted, improv- improvised reactions. It's that's a bunch of professional voice actors. They script out what's going to happen in advance and what you're legitimately watching is a group of people putting on a performance of people playing D and D. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Brad, was there anything else you wanted to, to throw in? Nope. I'm good. All right. Hey, first of all, um, thank you everybody out there who listened for this episode. I know this is a little bit different, but I just thought it's nice, uh, to have a kind of a cohesive, primer for anybody who's looking at at maybe running a game sometime eric jonathan guys thank you so much for coming on i really do appreciate it i was happy to be on chat <laughs> yeah same here thanks for having us <laughs> absolutely so everybody out there um if you like this kind of content let us know so we can do it more often maybe not necessarily these two guys maybe so uh that that'd be up in the air but you know hit us on our social media accounts and let us know and so uh, everybody out there, uh, well, as it turns out, I can't use my standard sign-off because there's four of us here. But thank you for joining the Four Corners Podcast, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>